inevitably in politics, uh, there's no such thing as the unvarnished truth. Uh, even if in fact the information is correct, it is typically framed in a way that uh, makes uh, one set of political actors look better or worse. Hello and welcome to our inaugural podcast. My name is Nina. Hi everyone, my name is Zach and we are both members of Hastings Law Journal, Volume 73. And today we're taking a deeper look at an article from one of our latest publications titled Identifying and Countering Fake News. We're accompanied by the authors of the article. Um, can you each take a minute to introduce yourselves? Sure, thank you so much, Mina. Uh, I'm Mark Verstreit. I'm a fellow at UCLA's Institute for Technology, Law and Policy. I'm Jane Bambauer. I'm professor of law at the University of Arizona. And I'm Derek Bambauer. I'm a professor at uh, the James E. Rogers College of Law at the University of Arizona as well. Fantastic. Thank you all for those introductions. And today's podcast, we really want to take an approach from two ways, considering most of our listeners are going to be students. We're hoping to chat with you today both about the article and the writing process. Um, before we dive in, can one of you give us a quick synopsis of your article and also why you decided to write on this subject? Yeah, thank you so much, Zach. Uh, I'll, I'll go first. So this article was sort of years in the making. Um, it started with political debate around the concept of fake news. Basically, we were chatting and we saw that there wasn't a lot of consensus as to like what fake news was. So sort of starting with uh, that definitional work, we sort of were able to break fake news up into like constituent pieces that also reflected different uh, types of fake news. So we thought that there were different financial motivations for fake news. So some fake news was created for profit and others was uh, created for nonprofit reasons. Similarly, there was different intent. So um, some fake news was created with an intent to deceive while others did not have like that similar intention. And so like along these lines, we we saw a bunch of different instances of fake news. So things like hoaxes where um, there's intent to deceive and it's sort of primarily created for, for monetary reasons. Um, satire, which uh, is often financially motivated but lacks the same intent to deceive. So one way to think about this is if you're sort of deceived by an Onion article, you've sort of missed the joke. And then finally, propaganda and trolling has uh, deceive, intend to deceive, but doesn't have the same sort of financial motivations. And with sort of like the underlying intentions and motivations, we sort of went to work in designing regulatory solutions that would strike at the root of these constituent parts. Before we dive into that, I think we also want to talk a little bit about um, your writing process in general. Uh, how did you three come together to work on this article, and what is it like collaborating on an article with multiple people? The process was sort of interesting because, you know, if it began as a white paper and then there were uh, many different law review drafts over a period of years. So, you know, some of the ideas took shape over a long amount of time and there was a constant sort of rewriting and reworking. So first of all, I think Derek and I would be remiss if we didn't make completely clear that that Mark did the lion's share of the work, both in terms of conceptualization and then um, and, and then the, re the report. Um, and, and Derek did quite a bit of, of writing and revising as well as we um, turned this into a law review. 
Um, but as Mark mentioned, you know, the, the motivation for this really came uh, following the 2016 presidential election when trying to understand the role that fake news played in, um, in the democratic process was sort of at, at its um, initial stages of, of frenzy. And uh, the interesting thing, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that it took us, you know, that we took several years to, to work on what eventually became this law review article because it wound up testing whether the taxonomy had enduring utility, um, right? Whether uh, it was certainly the, the initial white paper report was definitely useful at the time. It was downloaded and cited a lot, um, but, but it turns out that also uh, conceptualizing these different forms of fake news and understanding the limits of what different forms of regulation can do proved valuable even as you know, time moved on and we saw two more federal election cycles and, and then got the benefit of other research and data that came out of the social sciences since 2016. I think the, the only thing I would add is that, um, you know, when you have a, a group of three co-authors, you know, you start, the, the larger the number of co-authors, the more challenging the logistics. And so that was always something that we had to uh, manage really actively. The huge benefit of it is, of course, that uh, each of the three of us has sort of different experiences, different sort of prior beliefs about how information ought to be regulated and uh, some different ideas about what the core of the problem is and how we might tackle it. And so that allowed us in some sense to, uh, you know, what we, I think relatively quickly came to a consensus about the definition of uh, fake news. And then it was great because it allowed us to essentially put together a menu of options, right? For policymakers uh, who are looking to reform this. And so that's something that would have been much less rich if, only one of us had been uh, had been writing this paper. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that background. I know, I mean, writing is never easy. Writing about such a, a topic that can be political and with a group of people, it really does add more nuance to the conversation. And I mean, you three collectively wrote such an in-depth and elaborate rich paper that uh, we are really glad to read and, and glad that you shared with HLJ and everyone else who's been downloading it. I think we're both excited to talk more about the article itself in your article. And as you mentioned earlier, Mark, um, you talk about hoax, propaganda, parody, and satire. So which of these is the most interesting to study? Uh, Thanks, Mina. That's a great question. So this is something that also had the benefit of sort of our initial writing in 2016 and sort of the benefit of a few years of additional data. I think sort of the thing that is most difficult is, and what sort of my reflections are on this, is that we've seen that uh, propaganda was sort of like QAnon-based ideologies, but this is also problematic because propaganda is the most difficult to regulate. It mixes fact and fiction in a way that's difficult to debunk, which also makes it hardest for platforms to sort of get ahead of propaganda. So personally, I see propaganda as the most interesting and also maybe the biggest challenge moving forward? I completely agree. Propaganda, first of all, even recognizing what it is and what, where the bounds end, you know, invites an impossible line drawing exercise. There's a certain amount of poetic truth that any 
society needs in order just to function. <laughs> and, you know, not everything can be absolutely precise all the time. And so understanding it will be impossible to come to some consensus, some stable consensus about what is too much fiction and for, or falseness for the purpose of accomplishing some kind of political or social goal. And so, so, so that's the definition problem that I think is fascinating. And then as, as Mark said, even if we could define it, it, it is the most protected category of the ones we've described, well, with the, with the exception of satire, I suppose, because those who engage in it are often doing it for, you know, a politically motivated reason. Right. And I think, you know, I'd love to hear, Derek, if you kind of share the same sentiment, but I think that also is, brings up a major point that you discuss in your article, which is how difficult it is to, to measure intent. Um, specifically, as you discuss the the political motivations behind propaganda, what was that study like for you in writing this article of really trying to gauge intent and trying to discern intent behind these different types of fake news? I would say um, just briefly that I think it's correct because there is inevitably in politics, uh, there's no such thing as the unvarnished truth. Uh, even if in fact the information is correct, it is typically framed in a way that uh, makes uh, one set of political actors look better or worse. And so it's it's using uh, accurate information in a way to try to uh, alter electoral outcomes. With intent, it's really quite difficult because we're not yet able to measure that directly, you know, unless we could put people in fMRI machines, which seems quite impractical. And so you wind up using secondhand proxies. And uh, those proxies are fairly good in some cases, but are imperfect. And so there's a certain level of guesswork in there. And the guesswork problem is exacerbated by the fact that just the legal regulation, the sort of backdrop constitutional regulation for the First Amendment requires that when a government actor is attempting to regulate particularly core speech, political speech, that uh, they have to do so under conditions of strict scrutiny. And that means that not only does it have to be a compelling interest, which I think we're dealing with here, but that also the regulation issue must be narrowly tailored. And so that means that we have on the one hand, a measure for something that uh, our taxonomy finds quite important, which is intent. And yet it may inherently be less than narrowly tailored. Uh, it may be imperfect. And so that just further complicates legal approaches to the, the you know, kind of core problem we identify here. I think now we want to move into talking about the four model interventions to shape fake news. So we have the intent, we have the different um, types of fake news. Um, and then in your article, you discuss law, market, code, and norm-based solutions. So we were thinking we would tackle each one separately um, and get to some specific questions that we had about the post solutions. So first, what are, your, what are your major points as reforming Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act? Um, and Section 230 insulates publishers and distributors from most civil liability for hosting third-party content. Um, what are some suggestions you have for reforming the Act? One thing that I think is, is counterintuitive about this part of the solution is that Section 230 
became something of a political football in the last five or six years. Uh, prior to that, there were perhaps a dozen people in the country who sort of really knew what Section 230 uh, was and did, or perhaps even were aware of its existence. And then it became politicized and it became politicized for exactly the reason that it's intended to exist, which is that it, you know, the, the original goal was to allow interactive computer services, which at the time that the provision was created were, you know, CompuServe, Prodigy, AOL, the titans of the past, to either uh, moderate content. So for example, AOL for a while was trying to have um, only family-friendly content. They were the kind of PG uh, rated service or conversely to do no moderation whatsoever and not to hold the uh, interactive computer services liable for the speech created by others in either circumstance. And what we want to do is uh, actually moving in the opposite direction from most of the Section 230 reform proposals that are out there, most of which seek to weaken Section 230 and ours seek to strengthen Section 230 to um, provide more protection and thereby to place these intermediaries on more solid ground in terms of uh, their capacity to moderate speech without fear that what will happen is that in so doing, they will lose the, the immunity or the safe harbor that 230 creates and to make themselves liable. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, Derek, about the kind of political football game that Section 230 became, because being completely honest, I'm, I'm one of the was one of the spectators of that political kind of drama. And before reading the article, I, I knew Section 230, I knew it from the sound bites, especially from the most recent um, election cycle. But reading this approach and reading on um, this different uh, this different approach at, at reforming Section 230 is really interesting. What do you think is the likelihood, especially because it's so politicized, what do you think is the likelihood of moving the ball in that direction for reform, as you suggest? To be honest, I think that the likelihood of any change to Section 230 is really low, As um, and this too is counterintuitive because um, Section 230 is a little bit like the weather. Everybody hates it. Nobody does anything about it. Um, there is kind of a, a widespread consensus across the political spectrum that uh, Section 230 as it presently stands is undesirable. Um, I think that the three of us mostly do not concur with that. But the reason that we haven't seen um, any of the many, many uh, Section 230 reforms moved into law yet is that there's just much, much less agreement on the substance, right? So uh, if we just took the sort of two major American political parties, they have very different views of what the problem is, and hence their proposed solutions look very different. And the people across the proverbial aisle are unlikely to agree. Right. Well, and so I guess with that, and also coupled with some of the constitutional challenges that you mentioned, that makes law as a as a means of countering fake news, one of the more difficult approaches for countering. Would you agree? I think that's right. And I think it's uh, not, of course, accident. It's, it's deliberate political choice in, in terms of the way the First Amendment is structured. And it's also very slight historical accident in that what we have currently 
is uh, under Chief Justice Roberts, a court that has been almost uniformly quite protective of free speech protections. And, um, and this is something that certainly Jane can elaborate much further on. But if you look at a case like United States versus Alvarez, it turns out that we protect politicians who, who lie, who state things that are just empirically untrue as a means of attempting to get elected to office. And so that presents a rather steep climb for uh, people who want to force intermediaries, gatekeepers, however you might want to, to um, call them, to deal with information in a different way. Reform, or rather the, the recommendation that we make, it only seems on, on the surface to be counterintuitive because we're worried about the impact of fake news and yet we're saying that you know, these platforms and, and major internet intermediaries should be completely protected from any attempt to, um, you know, to, to, to sue them or, or in other, other ways regulate them. Um, and, uh, and so a natural response is, well, why shouldn't we just craft some sort of law that requires a reasonable effort to remove fake news? And, and, so, and so Derek just elaborated on why such a law would not be constitutional, because there is no, there is no exception to the First Amendment for false speech. There are narrower categories within false speech, like defamation, that can be regulated, but, but as a general category, it won't work. Looking at the sort of proposals that tend to come from, from Republicans, on the other hand, they're concerned about bias in the removal of content, whether it's fake news or removed for other reasons. And so they're proposing sort of a public accommodation style of law that would require all content to be made available. Well, that obviously is not going, if, if your main goal is to try to tackle and reduce the amount of fake news that's circulating around, that's, that's not going to help. Um, however, what we've seen is that there are actually some practical pressures on, on companies like Facebook and Twitter to do some amount, at least, of cleaning up. Maybe it's not adequate by, by many people's standards, but um, there's no doubt that the empirical data shows that following the 2016 election, these platforms did in fact change their processes. So a, a, a nice robust immunity will allow them to make those types of decisions and to gain a reputation for you know, not being the sort of forum that, that winds up uh, distributing a lot of fake news. And, and that's probably the best we can hope for. The second solution that you provide for countering fake news is using market-based solutions, um, which you state can drive regulation of fake news through financial incentives. Can you tell us why a market-based solution is appealing? A market-based solution is appealing for a number of reasons. The first is that some types of fake news, particularly hoaxes, respond really well to financial incentives. Some of the sort of empirical or ethnographic work that came out of the production of hoaxes around the 2016 election was reiterated that the primary motivation for hoaxes was financial. So by undercutting the financial incentives, you could, you could stymie a lot of the, uh, the production of, of hoaxes. But one sort of drawback with a market-based solution is uh, it's a little less tailored than maybe a legal intervention. A legal intervention could be very specific and targeted directly at sort of the, the conduct you're trying to regulate, whereas a market incentive, you sort of change uh, the ability to monetize certain conduct 
And, and from there, you sort of hope to have this ancillary benefit of people just naturally conforming their behavior to the set of financial incentives that you've tinkered with. Um, so you lose a little bit of the ability to navigate with sort of a scalpel. And instead, uh, it's a little more amorphous, but you have the added benefit of being able to not really run up against the constitutional issues that will inevitably come from any sort of legal intervention. One area of interest here would be something like the BBC's model, which essentially charges a license fee. So it's not, it's closely related to a tax, but instead um, everyone who watches the BBC pays a license fee and that just gives you essentially like a subscription to watch it. So there's no advertising revenue. So the incentives are quite different than what we see on traditional social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter. And so this would be an attempt to circumvent sort of the ad-based revenue model that prioritizes the production of fake news. I think one issue with the market-based solutions is that in some ways there's not a market problem. What I mean is the uh, the the reason that hoaxes draw a lot of a lot of traffic is that for um, you know for unfortunate reasons at least when people are in their sort of short term thinking mindset that's the content that they want that's the content that they engage with and so this isn't our market based solutions are not kind of the typical like figure out where the market is distorted and fi fix the you know fi fix the market failure. The, the problem is that people, in some sense, are able to access the kind of junk food of, of information that, um, that they have a hard time uh, putting down. Um, and so something like what the, the system that Mark described, it's a little bit like eating your vegetables, which, okay, maybe not everyone's going to do it. On the other hand, after, you know, after several years of social networking that... Um, that really prioritizes and emphasizes uh, engagement in, in the sort of um, short-term junk food style. Uh, I, I do think that there is more demand and more interest in, um, in, in a forum that, um, that caters to our, our sort of better selves. I really like that you talk, talked about that because as I was reading that section, I was thinking a lot about how we don't emphasize like media literacy education um, in the education system. And a lot of people don't understand how to read media and how to sift through some of that junk food, um, nor do they understand what websites are doing with our data and how what we're seeing is being manipulated. And I know that a little bit in the beginning of an article, there was a statement saying that the onus is on um, the companies and the government to kind of manipulate these interventions. But I do wonder if there will ever be a push for the cons on the consumers yeah, I think that's a really good point, Mina. So I think maybe one piece of it is media literacy, but we have to understand that readers operate within an ecosystem that is optimized for interests that are antagonistic to media. So, you know, think of something like Facebook. So someone who might be very media literate, if they're only experiencing headlines sort of arrayed in something very fast paced, like a newsfeed, may not have the same uh, amount of time and resources to to perform sort of a more 
rigorous analysis. So, you know, even though they may be media literate, just the way the platforms are designed and optimized sort of undercuts a lot of the media literacy tools that people may have. So media literacy will always be something beneficial, but it's it's sort of difficult when you're pushing against a platform that's engaged to sort of undercut media literacy at its core. Yeah, and I think that's actually the, the perfect transition into the third solution that you discuss, which is if you can't change media literacy, maybe we can adjust the architecture or in the internet context, the code, which is um, the third solution that, that you describe as having considerable promise for managing fake news. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you think that solution, you started to speak on it here, but how you think that solution would be successful as compared to some of the others? Yeah, I just wanted to say that the great difficulties with the platforms is that any solution that one proposes uh, has to scale to an extraordinary level. We're dealing with you know, just a flood of information that's, that's frankly unmanageable by humans. And so that means that regardless of whether we adopt a, a market-based or uh, law-based solution, for example, uh, code-based techniques are going to be critical uh, at the implementation point to do this. And so uh, one of the things too, is that we can leverage advances in things like machine learning and neural networks that can uh, help begin to detect in ways that older technologies could not some of these issues of, you know, sort of what is uh, political discussion from a particular viewpoint versus what is misinformation. And so what we've seen is uh, platforms experimenting with a relatively wide variety of programming techniques or mechanisms that allow them either to detect misinformation ahead of time or allow users to flag it after the fact. And the hope is that in so doing, you know, kind of tying this back to the user education point, it's possible that even highly literate and thoughtful users may nonetheless be attracted to somewhat less accurate information that nonetheless espouses their political priors. And to the degree that the platforms can use techniques to either um, remove that information or to make it less visible or less salient, uh, that deals with either the sort of, uh, you know, kind of conscious human tendency to seek out confirmatory information or the unconscious one to order the facts or to process their facts as they come to us in a way that supports our own existing beliefs. I think we're quite far away from code-based solutions being sort of a panacea. So I think this operates for several reasons. The first is sort of the definitional problem of fake news and particularly propaganda. It mixes fact and fiction. And for that reason, it's very difficult to develop a code-based system that can properly identify propaganda and remove it. It's much more difficult than other sort of code-based challenges that have been implemented on social media platforms. So say something like Facebook's nudity ban um, is much more easier to, to code for. Twitter's ban on hate speech is also easier to code for. For the most part, you can have sort of a set of, of keywords that are indexed and then a code-based system can reference those in filtering content. Determining propaganda is still a largely sort of human endeavor rather than a code-based one at this point. And just with the sheer amount of, of information on these platforms, it's very difficult for humans to have the chance to, to screen all of it. 
Do you think that there will be a resistance from some of these companies to make these code-based changes strictly because of some of these issues with how difficult it is and how um, politicized and how controversial some of these uh, approaches can be? Yeah, that's a great question, Zach. I think maybe where we can get the most traction would be uh, a code-based solution that doesn't really tinker with uh, removing content, but maybe shapes how people engage with content. So I mentioned earlier about the structure of the newsfeed being such that people are likely to engage with headlines and maybe not reason with articles very deeply. So some folks have advocated for adding more friction in, into this system. So Ellen Goodman at Rutgers has talked about adding friction within sort of media platforms. And I think anything that, that forces users to sort of move a little more slowly and reflect more thoroughly on the content they're engaging with could be a code-based change that has the secondary benefit of allowing people to determine if they're engaging with fake news or not. That will be a little more palatable because it doesn't remove content, but instead just shapes how users sort of interact with the platform itself. And I think that kind of segues us directly into the last model intervention that you presented. Um, you talk about norms as a potential regulatory tool for combating fake news. Can you talk to us about why it's so difficult to change norms and the process that's involved? Normally effective solution, but like you mentioned, they're very difficult to change. Um, you know, you can't really wave a magic wand and have society change. Uh, it's set of norms. Uh, they evolve very slowly. They're sort of impervious to sort of interventions to shift them in a direction that um, certain segments of society would think would be more desirable. So to that extent, um, they're incredibly unwieldy and sort of operate by their own logic. One thing that sort of influences the sort of the way norms are shaped is this sort of phenomenon where social media platforms, particularly Facebook, have tried to distance themselves from their sort of role that uh, is analogous to more traditional media companies. So Facebook sort of parrots this idea that we're a technology company, not a media company. And sort of with that distinction, they don't really invest in resources of a traditional media company. So um, although Facebook is a huge speech and news platform, uh, they don't invest in journalists or editors in the way that a traditional media company would. So even within Facebook itself, uh, the norms are different than with than within uh, a more traditional media company. So uh, there's norms both at the societal level that influence how fake news is produced and how people respond and engage with that content, and then there's the norms at the at the company level, which um, which are also sort of difficult to change, but can change based on hiring decisions and other things that are actually more uh, tractable than changing norms at a, a broader social level. Do you, which one do you think will have, or is, is the easiest to, maybe not easiest is probably the wrong word, but which one do you see as being the one that can progress the quickest? It, to me, it seems that changing norms at maybe a company level feels a, a little more um, manageable or, or a little more 
with some of the other solutions that we've talked about, these all seem kind of more geared towards companies. Is that kind of follow with with your hypothesis for where you would see these norms changing? Uh, yeah, Zach, I tend I tend to agree with you. I think that even though norms are very difficult to change, it's it's much more possible to change them at the company level, which then potentially spills over um, to a broader societal level. Um, I think just personally, the idea of changing um, norms around media production and consumption sort of socially seems incredibly overwhelming. Whereas, um, you know, I can sort of think of ways to, to push uh, norms in various directions, speaking like exclusively within a company structure. Right. That, that seems to track too with just, you know, even in the past year um, with uh, just all of the, all of the news surrounding ma- mainly these social media companies um, and, and investigations into uh, their handling of their platforms. seems like um, there are people on both sides of the aisle that are very interested in, in seeing some of these norms take shape in a different way. So that's encouraging to hear. Yeah, we were we were curious um, if there is anything that you would include in your article now that has developed in the recent months. I was just going to say that you know, the old joke, although no one's quite sure if it's Yogi Berra or Niels Bohr, the physicist who said it, is that the you know the hardest thing to predict is the future. Is that the the misinformation problem has shifted both in terms of kind of its most um, what I think was its most dangerous or pernicious aspects, and also just the sort of uh, political and social visibility that it's had, right? So we were worried for a long time about effects on the political process. And then all of a sudden we became deeply, and I think correctly worried about effects on um, what is basically a vast epidemiological crisis. And so in some senses, leaving the descriptive aspect and, and even some of the solutions at a relatively general level, hopefully makes it more useful, right? Is that it's less likely to become dated. And it's something that policymakers can sort of pull off the shelf whenever the next thing hits. Yeah, I, w- I was just going to add, I, I think in the last few months, the, the thing that has maybe changed the conversation around fake news the most is the war in Ukraine. I guess there are a couple phenomena that, that surprised me at least. One is that for the on mainstream media, like for the first time in years, if you look at you know Fox News coverage and compare it to CNN's coverage, it's not it's not identical, but um, it's not as far apart as <laughs> as we've seen coverage of domestic issues uh, be for the last uh, few years and. Um, and so that su- suggests that we, we aren't at the point where um, facts completely don't matter or that, you know, it's not that one side of the aisle will automatically take a position that, that goes against the other side automatically forever. Um, so, so that was, you know, I guess that casts into some um, relief what the um, potential impact of, of fake news is and whether it's, it can corrode everything or just mostly everything. The other thing I've learned, oh, oh so the, the, other, the other interesting thing I think about the war in Ukraine is that everyone expected Russia to be the kind of master manipulators, and they have not succeeded. 
um, the U.S. intelligence firms and and then Ukraine itself, both its leaders and 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 just you know civilians too, um, have have done have have really come out ahead in terms of perceptions. And so I don't know. That's been kind of an interesting topic. The other thing I learned um, since we submitted our final draft, I was surprised by, was um, I found two studies showing that following the 2016 election, Facebook actually did, seems to have done a much better job at reducing the virality of fake news, of hoaxes, than um, Twitter. And and the reason that's somewhat interesting to me is that at the time, you know, 20, 2017 or so, Facebook was, was really getting the sort of brunt of the criticism. Um, but these two completely independent studies that both have very credible methodologies suggest that, you know, we, we might not always get it right in terms of which companies are doing the most. That's great. You know, from that, I hear a glimmer of hope, maybe some progress moving towards countering fake news. And I think that's, that's a, maybe a great stopping point for us. Don't want to reveal too much. We want to thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today. We encourage all of our readers to check out the article, Identifying and Countering Fake News. Uh, It's in issue three of volume 73 of Hastings Law Journal. Uh, We encourage you to go read it, check it out. Just want to thank you all so much for your time today. This has been a lot of fun, incredibly insightful. And I know our readers, our listeners and our readers will be excited to check this podcast out. 